Good morning, family. You know, I was thinking about all the rain and stuff, and I thought about what Psalms 118 says. Even though it's dreary outside, it says that this is a day that the Lord hath made and that we should rejoice and be glad in it. So I know it's dreary outside, but lift up our hearts, okay? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for this day, Lord, with the rain that replenishes the earth. We ask that you lift the hearts of all of those who fall within the sound of my voice. We ask that you give utterance to our pastor that he may lead, teach, and reach all those who seek you. Father, we ask these things in thy son Jesus' name. Amen. Rainy outside, sunny in here. I like it. Um, all right, we're going to continue our series today, Amazing Adventures in the Story of God. Today we're going to talk about Moses again, and we're going in a sermon titled The Rescue. Um, the idea of rescue, the idea of escape and rescue is sort of seared into our collective psyche. Every, everybody loves a rescue story. Um, my, my boys, you've seen them running around here, the four-year-old and two-year-old, they like to climb up in their bunk. They have a bunk bed. They like to climb up in the second story, the second tier of their bunk and let their legs fall down between the wall and the bunk and sort of grab on by their arms so their legs are hanging, you know, and then they start calling for their dad. Dad, help, help. And I can't tell if they're really stuck or if they're just enjoying, you know, enjoying themselves. So anyway, I get to go up there and rescue them. They, they, the other day I walked in, I heard them, I heard Jameson saying, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, okay? And I walk into the playroom and Jameson, the four-year-old, has Lincoln, the two-year-old, standing on the train table with a blanket on his head meant to represent the golden locks, I guess, of Rapunzel. And Jameson is saying, Rapunzel, let down your long hair. So <laughs> I just walked out. No comment. Just you guys do your thing. Um, so this idea of rescue, it's just sort of seared into our hearts. It's who we, we understand stories of rescue. And today we're going to explore uh, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, which is the, the, probably the greatest rescue story in the, the Bible. It is the, the, the story to which all of the other uh, scripture writers point when they are trying to describe salvation or rescue or escape from evil or escape from harm. So let me back up just a little bit and put it in context before we jump into the passage. Last week we were talking about Moses and we, we started with the story of Moses' birth. You remember that Moses was born under an, an edict by the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and the, and the edict was that all male Hebrew children were to be killed and thrown into the Nile River. So Moses was born under that edict. And his mother, rather than throw him in the river, weaved together a little basket of reeds and put tar and pitch on that basket and lowered the basket into a, a little marshy spot in the Nile River where there were reeds coming up. It was the area where the Pharaoh's daughter and her servants would come and bathe. And so she sent, uh, Moses' mother sent her daughter Miriam, Moses' sister, to watch to, after that little, that little basket, that little ark was put into the river and watched to see what happened. Pharaoh's daughters, if you remember the story, Pharaoh's daughter comes with her servants. They see the basket and the reeds. She says, go see what that is. A servant goes picks it out and says, it's a little Hebrew child. And Pharaoh's daughter has pity on this child and takes her as her own. 
uh, and ends up raising Moses in the palace. So you'll have to sort of think about the context of that. Here's this little Hebrew child, right? A little Israelite child who's supposed to be dead. He's supposed to be killed. He's growing up in the grandeur of the palace, of Pharaoh's palace. And yet, looking through the window of the palace, he sees his brothers and sisters, the other Hebrew children, being enslaved, being beaten, being uh, oppressed, being driven to hard work, and, and, and sees them in bondage. So from this sort of exalted place in the palace, his heart is reaching out to his brothers and sisters because he's saying, That's, I'm one of them, and yet I'm here, and they're out there suffering. And so Moses decides at one point, he sees a, one, of the, one of the Egyptian slave drivers, he sees him beating one of the Hebrew children, and when he thinks no one's looking, he, by the hand, kills this slave driver and buries him in the sand, and he thinks no one's looking. And it turns out that it, someone was looking, and the secret gets out, and, and this, this makes Pharaoh very angry, of course, and Pharaoh wants to kill Moses, seeks to kill Moses. So just, just for a moment, we'll just stop and say, so Moses tries to take the rescue into his own hands. He tries to rescue someone with his own hands, but what results in that is that he is driven out of Egypt and he is out in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. 40 years, and he's 40 when he, when he does this, and he's 40 more years out in the wilderness. Then if you remember last week, we sort of focused on this Theophany, this numinous experience that Moses had where he hears his voice being called, Moses, Moses, and he turns and there's this bush and it's this sort of brilliant, bright, burning bush and out of that bush, God reveals himself to Moses and says, I am that am. My name is I am. I am. And, and, and God is introducing himself saying, I am all that is. I'm not created. I'm not destroyed. I'm it. I'm everything. Uh, and, God, and so Moses has this very personal encounter. And if you remember, in the story, God says to Moses, go down, Moses, way down to Egypt land, right? Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go so that they can worship me, God says, so that they can serve me. And then Moses goes down, and this is where we're picking up today's passage. Moses goes down into Egypt. I'm skipping over some detail, but you can read. It's, it's several passages of Exodus. Goes down, to Mo, goes down to Egypt, tells Pharaoh, let our people go. We want to go out and worship our God. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. There are a series of plagues that uh, come down upon the Egyptians. And finally, Pharaoh relents and says, okay, we're going, to, we're going to let you guys go. Get out of here. And uh, the story says that they, the Israelites quickly got everything together and left. And you have to sort of imagine, okay, the Bible says there were 600,000 men. Uh, and so a lot of commentators think that maybe there were in excess of two, maybe three million individuals, Hebrew Israelite slaves, that were making this mass exodus out of Egypt, okay? I'm not going to put the whole passage. I'm going to read you an extended passage of Exodus. I'm not going to put the whole passage on the screen because it's too big, but I'm going to put just this image because I want you, as I'm reading this, to imagine this is, this is the wilderness of the Red Sea. So this is, the, this is the geological area where these events took place, all right? And 
So just sort of keep that in your mind's eye. And then I'm going to read this extended passage here. This is Exodus, almost the entire chapter of, of Exodus 14. Um, this is after they were released. And, 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 and then Egypt, uh, Pharaoh had a, had a second thought. So starting with verse 5, it says, uh, 14 verse 5, it says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. We just let our slaves go. So Pharaoh made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them, a massive army. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook the Israelite children who were encamped at the sea, at the Red Sea. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared them greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, This is what the Israelite children said to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, Moses, in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Didn't we say, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? They're sort of deluded about (laughs) where they were coming from. They're saying, hey, didn't we tell you we were fine being beaten and killed and oppressed? Why did you bring us out here? Um, They said, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I love that line. Moses is saying, be quiet for a second. God's going to take care of this situation. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood, be- and stood behind them. So there was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. The scripture says this pillar of cloud separated the Israelites from the Egyptians. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst, on their, uh, went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the sea. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud 
looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Are you tracking the story? So, that, so the Israelite children are in the, walking through the Red Sea. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Amazing story. Amazing story. We could actually just dismiss right now because that, that, that passage is just so powerful and, and impactful. And every scripture writer knows that this story is a paradigm of what it means to have God rescue you. It's a paradigm of what salvation is. It's a paradigm of true freedom, of what true freedom means. And so I want to sort of unpack a couple of the themes that we see in this story as it applies to you and and I today. And the first theme that comes to mind for me out of this story is that true freedom means freedom to something, not just freedom from something. Freedom to something, not just freedom from something. I don't know if you read this article today, but I was intrigued by this article about a woman named Brenda Heist. Brenda Heist was a 43-year-old mother living in central Pennsylvania. She had a couple young kids. Uh, She had a husband. The husband and her were estranged. They were going through a divorce that appeared to be a somewhat amicable divorce. And everything was going, you know, wasn't, wasn't good, but it wasn't you know, crazy bad either. And, and so they were separating. And um, suddenly, Brenda Heiss disappeared. Completely disappeared. She, did, she dropped her kids off at school, and then she, no one saw her. Uh, the, they, they started calling. She didn't come to work the next day. They went to her house. There was a dinner defrosting uh, on the counter. There was laundry that was half done. Uh, but no one knew what happened to Brenda. Day or so later, they found her car parked near a park and abandoned. There was nothing missing. It didn't look like there was forced entry, and no one could figure out what happened. Pretty soon, the, the police began to suspect maybe there was foul play. They began to ask the husband because they said, look, they're going through divorce. Maybe there was some, some deep-seated you know, anger between these two. So, and the husband said, look, you know, you can check the house, whatever you need to do. Cooperated with law enforcement. Uh, they thoroughly checked him out. They eventually cleared him as a suspect. And day turned in, days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. 
months turned into years. And the little kids that, that, that Brenda had started growing up. They deeply missed their mom. They longed for her. They, every year they would celebrate her birthday. Uh, every year they would try to remember her and have little special moments for her. Um, but year after year after year continued and no one ever heard from her, okay? In 2010, she was officially pronounced dead. They just was sort of written off as a, as a cold case. We don't know what happened. We assume that she's been killed and we, we don't know what happened. Uh, that was in 2010. A week ago Friday, Brenda Heist approaches a police officer in Florida and says, oh, hey, I've, I've, uh, I've kind of been on the run for the last 11 years. I, um, I was going through a rough time, and I just wanted out. And, and, and what happened is this Brenda Heist literally just walked away from her life. She wanted out. She didn't want anything to do anymore with any of the stress and strain and problems of her life. But what happened is, rather than finding the freedom that she sought, she found herself living under bridges, scrounging for food, trying to live off the generosity of other people, sort of enslaved by the long series of lies and duplicity that she had told in her escape. You see, she was a trap to the modern notion of freedom, that freedom means free from responsibility, free from any sort of uh, requirements or free, no, no Lord, no Savior, no responsibilities, no requirements upon me. I just want to be free to be myself. I just want to be, I want to be my own Lord and Master. But what happens, I think, when we think of freedom as freedom only from something, we find out that we actually become ensnared to the thing that we think is going to liberate us. So if we say, look, I just want to be free to myself, what happens is we become ensnared to our own desires. We become trapped by our own habits. We become uh, slaves to our own base instinct. We get trapped in a world that we believe to be free, but we're not free to anything. We're just trying to free ourselves from something. Does that make sense? And, and, and I think that is exactly what happened in this case. Um, there are there are some really um, really interesting quotes, and I just wanted to give you a couple. Even before this is uh, Euripides, who was who was a playwright, a Greek playwright, long before uh, four hundred years or so before Christ, wrote this. He said, "No one is truly free. They are a slave to wealth, fortune, the law, or other people restraining them from acting according to their will." Whenever we try to escape and be free only to ourselves, we become enslaved to ourselves. We can become enslaved to ourselves. There's a great, uh, while I was preparing for this, I could not help but, but think of this Bob Dylan song. I don't know if you ever heard it. It's from this, the, the, the album Long Train Coming, right? And it's called You Gotta Serve Somebody. And I'm gonna read you just, just a couple uh, lines from it. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble, you may like to dance, you may be the heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, you may be a preacher with your spiritual pride, you may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side, 
You may be working in a barbershop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. You may be somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody, he says. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. How many of you know that no matter what, you're, you're ultimately in service to somebody? You're always in service to somebody. No matter if, you know, you're either service to a job, you're either servant to a job, you're servant to your, whatever it is that, that, that you value in life the most, that's who you serve. That is who you serve. Um, Exodus 9.1, I, I really want to point out that, not, that God didn't say to Moses, tell Pharaoh to set my people free and just left it at that. He said, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Because he didn't want them to escape just from something. He wanted them to escape to him. The other passages say, let them go so that they can serve me. Um, notice the difference in the, in the passage when the, when, the, when the Egyptians come and the, 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 the Hebrew children are standing there, their backs to the Red Sea, the Egyptians are coming, and the Egyptians are essentially saying to the Israelites, you're either going to come back and be slaves to us or we're going to kill you. Those are your two choices. And the Hebrew children say, huh, we only have two choices. Go back to slavery or be killed. That's when they turn to Moses and say, why did you even bring us out here? We were doing fine back there, right? That's because they had been freed from Egypt, but they had not been freed into service to God yet. They had not had what Moses had. You notice how calm Moses is. Moses says, be quiet. It's going to be okay. God's going to take care of us. Why? Because Moses had had that burning bush experience. He'd already had a moment in the presence of God. He had had a foretaste of where things were going, right? So he was already moving that direction, whereas the Hebrew children had not taken that step yet. They didn't realize that they were escaping into the service of God. They only thought they were escaping from Egypt. And so... Moses tells them, just wait. We have somewhere that we're going. Um, when we are free only to ourselves, we are vulnerable to enslavement of others. So when these Egyptian, when these Israelite kids or children just came out and they were only free to themselves, they were potentially vulnerable to being back enslaved into Egypt. Some of us today may be thinking, I wish I could be free from this job. I wish I could be free from a particular relationship. I wish I could be free from an addiction. I wish I could be free from this feeling. I wish I could be free from a certain anxiety or a certain habit. I wish I could be free from certain people who are trying to hold me back. But I want to caution us today that we not just free ourselves from these things, right? Because if you free yourself from your job, you may find that you're now enslaved to poverty or you're going to be enslaved to a new job that's just as bad. If you try to free yourself from a particular relationship, you may find that now you're a slave to loneliness, or you're a servant to a new relationship that's just as bad. If you try to free yourself from an addiction, you may find that you're just replacing it with a new addiction. If you try to just free yourself from one anxiety, you may find that you're just enslaving yourself to another anxiety. 
And so as we think about true freedom, I want us to think of it in terms of not just freeing ourselves from the things that we want to be free from, but freeing ourselves to the service of God and to the worship of God. The second theme that arises in this passage is that true freedom requires the destruction of that which enslaves. Why do you think the scripture goes sort of almost overboard to say, and after the, Egypt, after the Israelite children were freed, they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore? I mean, that's an extra detail that we could do without in the passage, right? Why does the writer go to the, to the degree to point that out? I think it's because God is trying to communicate to us that if we are going to be truly free, there's going to have to be a death. There's got to be something that dies. I have a friend in Los Angeles, a good friend of mine. This is many years ago. Uh, and this guy was, met a girl. She was a great girl. She was the best, best woman he had ever dated. I've known this guy for many years. And they struck up a friendship. Then they started striking up a relationship. Intimacy began to blossom. Uh, they really found out that they had a lot of compatibility. They began to really enjoy one another's company. They really started to like each other. And I was extremely happy for my friend because I thought, look, man, this is, this is good for you. This is, the be- this is the best thing that's come along for you in a long time. Um, so don't mess this up, right? And things are getting closer and closer between these two. But there was one problem. My friend, for whatever reason, didn't quite want to let go of the relationship that he had had with the girl that he dated before he met this girl. Now, it was platonic, but unbeknownst to the new woman that he was dating, he was still maintaining communication with the ex, okay? <laughs> I, I just hear some, mm, I just hear some, mm, <clears throat> some people are clearing the throats out there. Um, now, I'm not a relationship expert, and I was, at that time, by no means a model of, of, you know, decorum when it came to relationships. But even I knew, when I found out what he was doing, even I knew that he was potentially going to destroy this wonderful opportunity that he had if he didn't cut loose from the old relationship that he was involved in. And I mean completely cut loose. Let it go. And I remember advising him at one point saying, listen, man, you really need to stop communications with the, with the ex, right? These secret communications, even though they're seemingly innocent, you got to cut that out. Otherwise, you're going to lose this relationship and you're not going to have this relationship, right? Thank goodness. Um, actually, what did happen is that the new girlfriend found out about these other communications and it caused quite a controversy. They overcame it as a couple. He did eventually stop communicating with the old, uh, with his ex, and moved on and is happily married today. Um, So the point of that being is sometimes when we're moving into a new area of our life, sometimes when we're stepping into a new freedom, we've got to let some stuff go, right? We've got to let some things die from our past that are holding us to an old self, to an old life, that God's trying to liberate us from, right? Whatever those things are, whether it is some sin, some entanglement, some hurt, some bitterness, some anger, whatever it is, that is something that we've got to cut off, exterminate, let it die, bury it, 
and move on, right? Jesus says that except a seed, a grain of wheat, goes into the ground and dies, then it abides alone. But if it goes into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit, right? It, it creates many more seeds. If we look at Colossians 3, I think it really sort of captures this theme. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. What is he saying here? He's not, he's not saying that to come to God, you need to do this. He's saying now that you are already with God, now that you are already a new creature, you got to bury the old stuff, put it to death, let it go. Amen? Amen. Um, I think there was, I think it was Augustine in his confessions when he was becoming, considering to becoming a Christian. He said, God, make me pure, but not just yet. He wasn't quite ready to let go. But if God, if we really do want true freedom, if we really do want to move forward into the life that God has for you and for me, we got to let the old stuff go. We got to cut it off. We got to bury it and move on. Amen? Amen. And the final theme that I think comes out of this amazing passage is that true freedom is initiated by God's grace, not human endeavor. It's initiated by God's grace, not human endeavor. What started this entire story? The story of Moses coming to Pharaoh. What started that story? I'll tell you what started the story. What started the story was this. Moses, Moses, come over here. I want to tell you what I'm going to have you do. God looked down upon the Hebrew children, saw them in their struggle, saw them in their pain, saw them in their oppression, and said, I'm going to liberate them. It wasn't them, it wasn't their conduct that, that got God to move and free them. It was God's grace. It was God's mercy. It was God's love that he was extending long before they had ever done anything to, uh, to, 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 um, to get it, to earn it, right? God said, I want to reach out to them. I want to free them. Um, Rebecca and I were looking at pictures this week. She was looking for a picture, and we ended up going through, scrolling through like, you know, three years of photos on the computer. And Jameson and Lincoln came and piled on, and we're all looking at these pictures. And we're looking at pictures from when the boys were little tiny, little tiny babies, uh, and then kind of growing up to where they are now. And it struck me that there is nothing that those boys could do to earn my love. They've got my love. They had my love before they were even conscious of anything, right? My, I loved them not because of something they did or something they said or how good they were. I just loved them because they're mine. And there's nothing that they can do, and we communicate this to them, there's nothing that they can do that would destroy my love. I might be disappointed with them 
in their lives. I may get angry or upset at them. I may want to discipline or train them, but that doesn't mean I don't love them. I am going to love them no matter what. If they reject me, don't want to be around me, don't like me, that's not going to change my love for them. There's nothing that they can do that's going to break my love for them. That's what God is trying to communicate in this story, is that God is rescuing us despite who we are, not because of who we are. And as an example of that, let, let, me, just, let me just read you the passage. I don't think I put it up there. But let me go back and read a little bit of the, of the section that we read. When God was trying to liberate them, when God was trying to prepare them to cross the Red Sea, here's their response. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So it's not that, that, that they're saying, you know, yes, God, we're going with you. In fact, they're saying, we want to be back in slavery. But it's God's grace that reaches down to them and saves them despite them, not because of them. If we also look, when Moses tries to step ahead, this is another interesting point in the story. When Moses tries to step ahead of God's grace and liberate the Hebrew children on his own, at his own initiative, by killing the slave driver, right? What happens? He ends up going out in the wilderness for 40 years. It's not us that earn God's favor. God loves us before we even knew him, before we earned his love, before anything. So to be a Christian, all that means is that we accept the gift of God's grace. When God seeks us to rescue us, we just let him do it. (laughs) That's why I love the passage where Moses says, the Lord will fight for you, And all you have to do is be silent. Just let him do it. Let God do it. Um, Ephesians clarifies this. Ephesians 2, 7 through 8. It says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, It is the gift of God. God is reaching out to you today to say, I want to rescue you, not because of who you are, despite who you are. I'm going to give you one more passage. Galatians 5, verse 1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. God wants you and wants me to be free. And how is he going to do that? He liberates us. He rescues us. I'm going to just close with a story that I've, I've, I've told, but I, I just I feel like I want to share again um, a bit of the, my own personal story of when God sort of pulled me out of, the, of, the, of Egypt. Um, because I, I was under that false conception that to be free means to be able to do whatever I want. You know, having grown up in a somewhat restrictive religious home where I felt like all I had to do was toe the line, uh, I didn't have that personal sense of God's love in my heart. I just felt like, you know, I've got to obey these rules. I've got to keep up appearances. 
I've got to make sure that nobody thinks I'm doing bad, right? And when I got to 19 years old, I was over it. I was just done with it. I said, I want to be free. I don't want to be enslaved to this religion. I don't want to be enslaved to God. I don't want to be enslaved to the church. I want to be completely free to do whatever I want to do. And that was my mission, right? But I found, like everyone else who has walked down that path, that being free to myself meant eventually becoming ensnared to those things in my life that are not positive. Becoming ensnared and entrapped to my own instincts, to my own sins, to my own desires, to the flesh. If we try to be free to ourselves, we become trapped by our flesh. And so it wasn't until years later where there was that relenting, there was that surrender, where I finally said, God, maybe I'm not in charge. Maybe I can't do this on my own. Maybe I need a rescue. And I thank God that when I finally reached that point, God plucked me out, cleansed me, saved me, and pulled me close to him. So that now I am his servant. And by being his servant, I'm free. That's the paradox. That is the paradox. By serving God, we are liberated. We are liberated from the slavery of everything else that comes before that. So I just want to encourage you today. I know many of you are already Christians and many of you are already you know, living for God and following Christ. But, but even still, there might be parts of your life that you just need to let go. That those, those old trappings of the, of the slave life, just let that go, right? And then for some of you that are still trying to be Christians, let me just say this, don't try anymore. <laughs> don't try, right? Because God is the one who brings you to himself. Just let him, just let him, amen? Let God rescue you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. We worship you. We thank you for this amazing story. God, we ask that as we go through today and this week, that you will help us, Lord, to really understand what it means to give our lives to you, to let you rescue us, God. Father, we need you. We find ourselves ensnared, entrapped. We find ourselves at times... um, troubled by our own life. We try to set ourselves free and we end up worshiping our, you know, false gods, false idols. We end up enslaved to ourselves. And Father, we just ask today that you open our hearts and just set us free. Free us, Lord, from, our, from the slavery of self and let us know what it means to worship you and serve you. Father, we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.